Well, um, we're going to continue with our series that we started last week, which is all about our shape. Uh, different picture this week. See if you can guess which bit of shape we're thinking about as the picture comes up, hopefully. Anyone want that? And uh, so last week we were thinking about the S in shape, S-H-A-P-E, standing for our spiritual gifts. Those talents, no, sorry, not those talents, those abilities that God gives us by his spirit that enable us to do things that we couldn't do if the spirit wasn't with us. So those spiritual gifts. And we talked about last week how God has a unique purpose for each of us. I use that line that we, we can't, from the book that I'm going to mention in a moment, it's, it's not the truth that we can be anything we want to be, but it is the truth that we can be everything that God destined us to be. And, and what he destined us to be, can be, we can move towards an understanding of that and find our purpose and begin fulfilling it when we realize what our unique shape is. And in this series, we're thinking about that unique shape being a blend of five things. And last week, we thought about spiritual gifts. This week, we're thinking about our heart, H, nice and easy. And if you want to follow along, I'm not, this isn't, we're not copying the series, but you will see significant overlaps. And actually the structure of today is from this book, which comes from uh, Saddleback, and it's uh, part of their program called Shape. Again, I'll leave it here on the table for you to take a look at if you want to look at it later. Today, as I think about heart, I think that God wants to do some heart surgery on some of you here. I do, I believe it. And, uh, and it's because he wants to capture your heart and he wants to do something in your life that will drive you from the heart. In the Old Testament, what we have is this law, this group of rules and regulations that were designed to be like an external force that pressurizes you to behave a certain way. The New Testament picture is very different. The New Testament picture is God, by his spirit, comes and lives inside you, in your spirit, and so from the inside out, you start living and believing in the way that Jesus wants you to. If, if it's not Jesus, I'm busy, but if it is Jesus, then I'll take that call. So God wants to capture your heart, to really grab you and to do something inside that propels you in your life. And friends, there is a battle going on right now. Some of you it's Angry Birds and other games on your phone, and some of you it's the temptation to just let your mind drift elsewhere. There's a battle going on right now, and the truth is this, Jesus wants to capture your heart Put something inside your heart that will drive you in life. Let me make it really clear. You're going to be driven in life. And it will either be something outside, a boss, a need, uh, whatever it is, a relationship that forces you and pushes you along. Or it's going to be something from the inside, an internal desire, an internal drive that pushes you into life to seek to try and do something. And in that internal drive, that could either be something that comes out of our own broken flesh and our kind of wants and desires and those inner drives, which you can explore with your therapist at great length at some other time, and that's really worth doing. Or it can be the drives that God breathes into you and the things that God puts inside of your heart. And I want to tell you today, 
that in terms of finding your purpose, in terms of finding meaning in this life, in terms of doing anything at all that is going to be worthwhile, you need to find the blend of your spiritual gifts and what God wants to put in your heart. What are the things that God has put there? And as you release those things and live according to those things, then you'll prove the reality of this text that we put up here from Colossians. This text which is a kind of a a direction for living. It comes amidst a, a group of really quite controversial instructions which we'll get around to teaching on another day. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Did somebody just say yes as I read that? <laughs> which means I'm going to stop now and preach my other message about equality in the marriage from Ephesians chapter 5 where it tells us that we submit to one another out of reverence to the Lord and men get ready to die for your wives so okay I've done it okay wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord husbands love your wives don't be harsh with them See, she didn't say yes because she's loving and she's kind and she doesn't want to embarrass you in front of people. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Let's just say that again. Children, obey your parents. For this. Uh, fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Nathaniel Joel. Fathers, don't not. And then he goes on to say this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do not try and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And so when we find that thing that God has put in our hearts, that dream, that desire, in the midst of that controversial list, we find this instruction, find the thing that's in your heart, then you can live with all of your heart. You can serve with all of your heart because the drive to do that comes from inside of you and not outside of you. You're not just serving somebody else. You're not doing what they say. You're serving the Lord because you found that unique thing that he's placed on your heart. And in just a few moments, and it's going to be a little shorter today because we have communion, I want to kind of help you think about some of the things that we might ask or think of when we try and figure out what is it that the Lord has put on my heart. And there are all kinds of things in my heart, but what's the Lord put there? You know, I would love to see wolves finish in the top four. That's in my heart, but I don't think the Lord put it there. As much as we do have a manager called Child of the Holy Spirit in Spanish, but there we go. What might we ask ourselves if we want to kind of start trying to figure out what it is that God has put on our hearts? And so we might ask ourselves a question like this first question. What is it that drives you? What is it that drives you? It's a really good question and I want to encourage you just to take a moment now and to just reflect over this last week and ask yourself that question. As you've gone through the week, if you've experienced like a pressure point, a moment where there was a real sense of being driven, having to get something done, what was it? After work in your leisure time, was there something you really wanted to complete? And so you took time out and you sacrificed and you made space and time and gave resources towards doing something that inside of you, you just felt like you really wanted to get that thing done. Was there something? Has there been a moment this week where you've had that sense of like a, a hand being on you, just pushing you along a bit? What is it? What was it? And here's the thing. Was that something 
that was in line with what God is saying and doing, or was it something else? And the first thing we have to kind of wake up to is that the things that drive us can be the things of God, or it could be our broken human flesh, or it could be the other stuff that's around us. What the Bible talks about is principalities and powers and the rulers in this world, sometimes expressed in the powers of the state and the, what's at work behind powers of the state sometimes. What is it that drives you? And I want to encourage you to start to think about what is it that's driven you in the past and what are those things and times in your life when you've experienced a sense of God in the thing that drove you? What happened to that thing? Did it dry up? Did it get lost? Did it get overtaken by the other things? Did the urgency of, of paying bills and family and mortgages and career progression, did that drown out something that was there at the beginning? I have a friend who's a, a barrister and uh, he was doing really well in his practice and he was doing excellently well in his practice. Not a barrister we all know, so don't worry. <laughs> Just instantly occurs to me. And he was doing huge amounts of great stuff. And you know what? He, he just burnt out. He was traveling great distances and was working more and more hours and progressing more and more in his career. And there came a moment when he just kind of stopped and thought, actually, I'm, I didn't come into this law to do this. I came into law because I really wanted to help people who were struggling. And so he took a sidestep and a bit of a paid downgrade and and he found a job that was closer to home, working with a as a charity law specialist within a more local firm. He cut down the amount of traveling he was doing purposefully so that he could do more stuff in the church that it was on his heart to do, but also so that he could completely focus on just doing charity work within this agency. He just paused and realized that he'd become utterly driven by career. What is it that drives you? Something's gonna drive you. What is it? Have you found that thing? Have you thought it through? Have you even stopped to ask the question? Here's another question that might help you kind of figure it out. Who is it that you care about? Who is it that you care about? What are the things that, that move your heart? Who are the people that really move your heart? You know, I checked with Nathaniel a little earlier today and I said, you know, can I share a story? I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm just really proud of you. And he said, Dad, don't make it look like you're bragging. So this isn't me bragging. This is me being a proud dad. You know, when Nathaniel was about seven or eight years old, uh, Susanna was a volunteer in, a, soup, in a, a food bank. And she came home one day and was sitting around the table. And, and in our house, we pray at each mealtime. But if there's something really pressing, if there's something urgent, we might just remember that in our prayers at, at mealtime as well. And so we're sitting around the table to eat. And Susanna has said, as we pray, can we just remember the food bank? There's a real shortage of soup. Some of you may have heard this story before in a one-to-one -one situation, but we sit around the table and we've prayed and we've prayed for the food bank and we're having our dinner. And then Nathaniel chirps up, Dad, how much is a can of soup? And I said, oh, well, if you go to Little, a can of soup's about 30p. He said, okay, we carry on eating. A few moments later, he says, Dad, so 100 cans of soup would be 30 pounds. I said, yeah, that's right. Feeling quite pleased that he's coming on in his maths and he's doing really well. Some of you, more spiritually attuned, can see exactly where this conversation is going. A few minutes later, there's another question. Can you guess what the question was? Dad, have you got 30 quid? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So I said, son, yeah, I've got 30 pounds. So we went off to Little and we bought 100 cans of soup and we went down to the food bank. And at the food bank, they had Nathaniel put stickers with love from Jesus on those cans so that they could go out. And since that time, Nathaniel has always cared and has been concerned for people who are hungry and people who've had no food. So that, so that this week he took a dare with a friend to do something silly. His friend bought his tea because he won the dare, which meant Nathaniel could buy food for somebody who was homeless because it's in his heart. I say that not to brag, but because at 15, Nathaniel's evidencing the signs of who he cares about. He's a lovely boy. Could care for his sister a bit more. <laughs> but already at 15, he's discovered that there are some people who his heart moves for. And so when he comes home on the train and sees people that he knows. We don't give away money to beggars in our house. It's just not what we do. What we do do is we check, have you had a meal today? And if you haven't, then we'll buy a meal. Nathaniel does the same. Not because his dad told him. Not because of a great sermon that I preached about needing his heart changed, but because God did something in his heart and Nathaniel knows who it is. Who is it for you? Who is it that moves your heart? Is there a group of people that you can't get out of your head when you're praying and you just long that God would do something and, it, and it's the group of people that maybe drives you to tears? Who is it that you really care about? And if you want to know the definition of care, you do something about it. It's not like a, a passing concern or an interest or a look. It's something you actually do something about. You put your money where your mouth is. Okay, and then we can start to ask questions like this. As I think about that group of people, and I'm going to use the example of people who have no food, and we good one for us at the moment because of what we're doing on Thursdays, we could ask this question, couldn't we? What are the needs that God wants you to meet? You see, there's all sorts of needs within that, and as we think about our own response to what we see, let's just take the issue around homelessness and food poverty, there's all sorts of things that we could do. And so for some people, the appropriate thing is to say, every time I go shopping, because I'm moved by this, I'm gonna buy five things that I put in the food bank here, and that's my response. Praise God, that's a practical need that you're helping meet. It may be that what is in your heart is something a bit bigger and different. God wants me to establish a food bank. I'm going to start a new food bank here in South Woodford. It may be that in your heart, the thing that God wants you to meet is, is that you know that there's something you can do because there shouldn't be food poverty in our country. And so you're going to start a campaign to end food poverty in our country. Do you see the different responses that there are? Now, let me be absolutely clear, as clear as, be, as can be. Don't for a second think... I can't start a campaign that will end food poverty, so I can't do anything. Because actually, it's great to start a campaign against food poverty, but if nobody's putting tins in the food bank, people aren't being fed yet. So what is it I can do? As God, as I think about those people, as I think about the things that drive me, the things that concern me, what is it I actually could do? What is it that's in my heart to do? In my heart, 
I'd be scared of doing that thing, but you know, I would love to do that. We express some of that on a Thursday. For some people, what's in your heart to do? I would just love to cook a nourishing meal that can be served to people on a Thursday because through the week they're often eating street food, which is all sandwiches and fillings. Whereas if I create a really healthy, thick soup full of vegetables and nutrients and goodness, I know that if they come here and eat at least once, they're going to get something that was really good for them. That's what's in somebody's heart. Somebody else might say, rubbish at cooking. You don't want me cooking. I just want to sit down with those folks and hear their story. I want them to know that there's a God who loves them. I'm going to make sure that before they leave this building on a Thursday, somebody's prayed to them, and that'll be me if nobody else does. What's in your heart to do? So it might be that you have this heart for a certain group of people, but it isn't to meet all of their needs. You can kind of focus a little bit. You can begin to understand what it is that's in your heart. You can start putting flesh on it. You can see what it looks like. What's in your heart? I really care about people who have no food and people who are homeless in our neighborhood. That's hallelujah. As I pray, I'm really moved by them. So what is it you can do? I really feel that what I could do is I could sit down with folks here on a Thursday. See how it starts to work and how it starts to come together as God releases these things in our hearts. The fourth one's more of a, a statement as much as a question, really. I mean, you can phrase it as a question. The book does phrase it as a question. But do you know the cause that you want to help to conquer? Do you know the cause that you want to help to conquer? What, what is it? Can you name it? Can you, can you start to really define this is the issue, this is the need, and this is how I'm going to help conquer it? So we've thought about the kind of the drives that we have, the who the people might be, the kind of the what the practical thing we might do is, but do we really understand that thing then? If God has placed this on our hearts, do we really understand what the issue is? Have we done the work in doing that? Um, sometimes it's really easy. Uh, I'm going to anonymize a story. <laughs> it's an important story. Somebody once said to me they felt really concerned to take, uh, it wasn't a preaching role, it was another role a bit like preaching in the life of the church. And I said to them, great, so will you do some study and get to know this issue and to really delve into it and prepare yourself so that you can be fully involved in that? And they said, well, no, I just feel that God's told me to do it, so I'm just going to do it. And the area that they wanted to get involved in is something that really needed somebody to (laughs) develop themselves and be willing to learn more and get deeper in their understanding. But sometimes there can be that, well, God has said this and this desire to get involved, but then this bit, which is really getting to know that thing and understanding it and doing the time so that you can think and pray and speak incisively and authoritatively about the issue. We don't do that bit. And I want to encourage us that, that in this developing of our heart, it's, it goes beyond just the mere feeling. It becomes the investment of time to really understand this whole area that the Lord is calling us to. Let me be clear, if you can't be bothered to put that time in, it's not the thing, so look for the other thing. Look for the thing that God wants to capture your heart with. Susanna and I were married on February the 16th. January the 16th. I know which month I'm in.
I'm still lost in wonder and adoration and praise. That's where my heart is. And so around our anniversary time, which was last week, comes Martin Luther King Day. And so in Monday in the United States, Monday the 20th of January this year, uh, always the third Monday in January, uh, sorry, or the first Monday falling after the 16th, um, is Martin Luther King Day. And uh, the most famous thing that any of us know about Martin Luther King is that he had a dream. Anybody know any parts of his dream? If you had to summarize his dream, Equality, yeah. We could use great lines like that people would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. He longed to live in a world where equality was realized. And in that dream, it drove him to do incredible things. Let me be very, very clear. Two things you need to know about Martin Luther King. Firstly, Big, big hero of mine. I read his autobiography, I cry every time. Why? Because I find him to be one of the most inspirational people that has ever lived. Secondly, he wasn't perfect and I'm aware of it. But imperfect people can be used by God to do incredible things. If you don't believe that, you need to take the book of Psalms out of your Bible because it's written most of it by this guy called David. And as lovely as he was, and as much as he was a man after God's own heart, he was proper dodgy when it came to sex. Martin Luther King had a dream, and that meant his whole life changed because he was captured by this dream, a dream that he knew came from God, a dream that he could speak about and quote scriptures for, a dream that whenever he had a moment he would gladly speak at length about. This dream was for a very, very different place. Some of you will know of the the message that he gave when he talked about having been to the mountaintop. It was immediately followed by another sentence. Anybody know? I may not get there with you. Because he knew the reality of pursuing this dream meant that people who saw his dream as a nightmare would try and kill him. But he didn't stop. Why? Because he was enraptured with this dream. He loved this dream. He knew that God had put it in his heart and that he was uniquely placed to be the one to see that dream become a reality. Now it may not be that you get a Martin Luther King style dream, but here's a question. When you switch your brain to just neutral mode, when it's on its screensaver, where does your brain go? What's your dream? What is it that when you're in that really dull meeting and you're doodling in the margins, what is it that you're doodling about? What is it that you wish you were doing? Where is it you wish you were? What's your dream? Now let me be really, really clear. Paul, in Romans chapter seven, talks about the brokenness of our human identity. And he says, I understand this fully. He says, I know that there is a good thing that I should do and I don't do it. And I know that there's stuff that I should definitely not do, and I can't help myself but do that stuff. Let me be clear. This is Paul, who had an encounter with the risen Christ, who took Christianity from being a small Jewish sect and turned it into a worldwide faith. He says, 
I still struggle to do it right. He says, there's still this battle that rages within me, with my old flesh and this new life that has come in Christ. So we need to pay attention to what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, which is if you think you're standing firm, be careful just in case you fall. Our dreams can be dreams from God or they can be dreams from that broken flesh. But I want to challenge you to start asking God, God, what is my dream? What is it that really I could give myself to? Maybe that there's more than one. You know, for me, I went off to Kansas City in 2017 in a sabbatical and I spent time in a prayer center and I heard God say certain things to me about being in a church that was fully celebrating the things of the Spirit, not just tolerating the Spirit, but celebrating the Spirit. God spoke to me about how in the last days he's going to raise up the house of David, not the house of Moses, but the tabernacle of David, a place where there is 24 hours a day, worship and praise ongoing. We might need to raise a bit more money because the Tabernacle of David had 4,000 musicians and 200 and something singers, so <laughs> that might take some resourcing. But I have a dream that in this nation, God would raise up the house of David. That we would be places where his presence is at the very heart of who we are so that worship and prayer is always rising. And people encounter God, not through teaching or witnessing primarily, but through his actual presence at work in the heart of his people. That's my dream, one of them. I've got lots of dreams, that's one of them. What's yours? What is it that God is uniquely putting inside you and making part of your shape? We haven't talked a lot about scripture. We haven't done an in-depth on scripture. And forgive me, if you're a regular here, you would be surprised by that because you know that I normally spend a big chunk of time in scripture. And for me, it's something I'd love to do. But I want us just to focus as we draw this bit to a close and before we share in communion, just to kind of ground it a little bit and see something of this idea of dream and vision and what's on your heart in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We don't lose heart, how? By looking at Jesus' heart. And the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus had a dream. There was a joy set before him. I wonder if you have ever thought of what that joy is that was set before Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured all that he went through. All that suffering, all that scorn. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross and died and was buried for three days. 
For the joy set before him, he was raised up and continued to teach his followers. For the joy set before him, he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. I wonder if you have ever thought of what that joy is. The joy of being worshipped. Uh, 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 he was already being worshipped. He's part of the God who is Father, Son and Spirit. He's eternally existed and was already being worshipped in heaven, surrounded by angels. So it isn't the joy of being worshipped. What would it be? The joy of being in the Father's presence. No, he was already there. The joy set before him was us. Was us. That we might be his. That we might be there with him. When Jesus listened to all the stupid questions and didn't just tut and walk away and give up. It was because there was something set before him that he was moving towards. When the people came and took Jesus and took him to the edge of the city so that they could stone him, the reason he didn't just stop right there and then or give in to it is because there was something set before him that he was moving towards and that he wanted to see realised. When they purposefully misunderstood him and twisted his words, he didn't complain back and snap back and fight back. Why? Because there was a joy set before him that he set his face to. He's living towards the dream, a reality that he can picture, something he wants to see realized. When they pulled out his beard by the handfuls, when they covered his eyes and spat at him and said, tell us now then if you're a prophet, who spat on you, who hit you? The reason he didn't call down a whole host of heaven to obliterate them all is because he had a dream and he had a joy set before him that he was heading towards. When that crown of thorns was placed on his head and it's pierced into his flesh that caused blood to run down, the reason he didn't throw it back at them is for the joy that was set before him, the dream he knew was going to happen. When the nails went into his hands and into his feet and he was raised on that cross and could hardly breathe, he didn't step off it and reveal his glory in a new way, but endured it because there was a joy set before him. The joy that you would be his and that he would be yours. The joy that we would be his people and that he would be our God. The joy that we would be united with him forever. That was the joy set before him. That's what he didn't have when he left heaven, that he lived through here on earth to get by going through all of that. It was us, it was us. Friends, God has got a unique purpose and a destiny for you. And you find that purpose one of the ways by figuring out what are the spiritual gifts he's given us, but also what's really going on inside my heart. There's a procedure that some people have. It sounds freakish to me, but maybe even some folks in this congregation have had it. You know some people who've had it. And it is that your heart doesn't beat quite right. There's a little arrhythmia there. And every so often it just kind of stutters. And so in what sounds truly barbaric, but is a life-saving procedure for some people, they put you on a bed and they shoot electricity through your heart so that it restarts. I mean, doesn't that just sound crazy? But it works. 
And for some people, it works really well for a long time. A shot of electricity through the heart so that it beats in time. And what was the irregular beat, the, the bit that shouldn't be there, is dealt with. Friends, some of us need a shot through the heart today. So that, that irregular beat, that bit that isn't quite in time, that bit that comes from our brokenness or from the stuff around us that's driving us on, that can be dealt with. And instead, our hearts can start beating with the heartbeat that God intended them to have. Heartbeats of heaven inside each of us that propel us forward for the joy set before us. The dreams set before us. The goals set before us. Not because somebody outside tells us we have to, but because from within us, we long and desire to fulfill our purpose of everything that Jesus had captured us for. Communion is one of those moments where we put ourselves in the right place. We remember what it is Jesus has done. We remember our utter dependence on him. And in eating this bread and in drinking this wine, it's a moment for us to say, God, I'm coming back to basics. I'm coming to the very beginning. As I eat this bread, would you strengthen me? Would you put something in me? As I drink this wine, would you cleanse me afresh? Would it be a fresh start? And you might be saying to God this morning, God, would you just like send an electric shock through me today so that my heart would be in step with yours? And the stuff that isn't from you would just melt away. Let's pray. And just before we share in communion, I want to give you a moment just to confess before God perhaps your own sense that your heart hasn't been in the right place or you've been focusing on the wrong things and you've given your heart over to something else. The writer to Hebrews says we should consider Jesus so that we don't lose heart. And maybe some of us have lost heart because we took our eyes off him and we started focusing on other things. So just in a moment of stillness, I invite you to say sorry to God. I invite you to tell him that you want to do things his way. to ask for his forgiveness and for his fresh beginning. And Father, as we gather around this table, we do turn from those things that we know are wrong. And Lord, you tell us in your word that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just, that you'll forgive us and that you'll cleanse us. And so as we come and confess before you now, Lord, that our hearts haven't been wholly yours, that we have given ourselves over to other things, we ask that your forgiveness would flow, that you'd lift us out of any shame and guilt, that it would just come off us, and instead the freedom that you won for us would be ours a fresh beginning and a clean slate and a new start. Father, you say that if we confess our sin, then you are faithful and just and you'll forgive it. Help us to know today that we are forgiven people when we confess to you. And where the enemy would seek to hold things over us and draw us back to them, we prophesy your freedom, 
your wholeness, your release in Jesus' name. You are free. So Lord, would you strengthen us by your spirit. And as we come and break bread together and share wine together, Lord, we pray that we would find fresh heart, strengthening for our heart, courage and hope from you. In Jesus' name, amen.